Get ready for a one-of-a-kind experience. Welcome, welcome to the Starter Zone, your home for the weekly news from around the world. Your host for this journey, Amanda. I don't know. I think he prefers to be called Bigfoot. She's going to bring you everything you need to hear about entertainment, gaming, and maybe just a little bit bizarre. Hold tight, because here she comes. Well, hello there, my friends, and good day to you all. And thank you, Raven, for that warm, warm welcome. Welcome to the Starter Zone. I am your guide, Amanda, and it is time to bring you the headlines for all of the entertainment news sources. Today, we're going to look at a mashup coming to Call of Duty, Barbie and Oppenheimer are about to clash, a Pokemon Go lawsuit, Deadpool, Wolverine, library books, and more. Saddle up and let's go. My boys are back, and there is going to be some trouble. In the world of Call of Duty, that is. Who knows if the Amazon Prime hit, the boys will ever get its own video game. You know, like Marvel and DC superhero conglomerates that you know the show pokes fun at. But the characters from the Emmy-nominated series are coming to the gaming space anyway. The characters of Homelander, Starlight, and Black Noir will arrive in Call of Duty as well as one more hero that Amazon and gaming studio Activision are keeping under wraps for the time being. The characters in the likeness of Anthony Starr, Aaron Moriarty, and Nathan Mitchell, they're breaking into Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 and Warzone Season 4 Reloaded starting on July the 12th. Now the reveal comes with a whole batch of still images of the characters in the game. And it also includes a fake press conference from Vought International, the corporation in the boys, with Black Noir addressing the reporters. Now, according to the Activision announcement, players will be able to access these characters through bundles for about 2,400 COD points. The collaboration was first teased last month, but further details have since emerged. And the game will also be incorporating a Temp V component. Now, on the show, Temp V was a new drug that was introduced in Season 3. And unlike its predecessor, Compound V, which gave humans permanent superpowers, well, if they were able to survive the transition, Temp V gives individuals temporary abilities. So Call of Duty players are going to be able to access the charge jump, electric shock waves, laser vision, and teleportation powers in-game with the various Temp V cartridges. There are some fans that are theorizing on social media that Carl Urban's character, Billy Butcher, could be the other hero from the boys that will debut alongside the previous three, but time will tell if their instincts are correct. I can't remember the last time I had a good cup of chai. And oh my god, if that is the case, fans are just going to collectively lose their minds, and by fans, I mean me. Butcher is a very brutal character, no doubt. He's worse. He's no worse than Homelander, honestly. But I absolutely love Carl Urban's portrayal of Butcher, so let's hope that's a thing. Anyway, anyway, I mentioned in a previous episode that the boys will be returning for season four at some point because it's delayed. The producers are standing in solidarity with the Writers Guild of America, and they went on strike back on May the 2nd. So we're maybe looking at like a 2024 release date for the show, if I had to make a guess. This year, however, we're going to see the premiere of Gen V, which is the spinoff series, which is set at Vought's College for Young Supes. So fans won't be thirsting for the boys' content too much longer. Now, speaking of the Writers Guild, there's a new acronym that I just recently learned. It's called the SAG-AFTRA. S-A-G hyphen A-F-T-R-A. It stands for the Screen Actors Guild American 
Federation of Television and Radio Arts. Holy cow. That's a mouthful. Okay. So SAG-AFTRA represents about 160,000 actors, announcers, broadcast journalists, and dancers, DJs, writers, editors, hosts, puppeteers, recording artists, you name it, it's pretty much covered. Okay. The Writers Guild went on strike back in May, and those in Hollywood really started to get nervous. More and more actors and performers were sharing their support of the WGA, the Writers Guild, and they were doing it publicly. And now it seems their concerns may be valid. The actors might soon be joining Hollywood screenwriters on the picket line if the union, SAG-AFTRA, and the major studios fail to reach a deadline of a deal by midnight on July 12th. The two sides are haggling over pretty much the same issues that are front and center of the Writers Guild. Higher wages, increased residual payments or type of royalties, and significant guardrails around the use of artificial intelligence. Should the actors go on strike? This will be the first time in 63 years that both the actors and the writers are out at the same time over a contract dispute. The last time it happened was in 1960. For context, Ronald Reagan was still an actor. He was also the president of the Screen Actors Guild. Elizabeth Taylor, Jack Lemmon, and Marilyn Monroe were now out of work. That strike lasted 148 days. Hollywood is already about 80% shut down right now since the writers went on strike. And while some television shows and some movies have continued filming, the writers were pretty surprisingly effective in shutting down shows and production. So if the actors join them on the picket lines, productions will be closed completely. A reality that will have a very significant effect on the local economies in Los Angeles and other film locations like Atlanta and New York City. During the last writer strike about 15 years ago, that was a writer-only strike. The Los Angeles economy lost, I think they said, an estimated $2.1 billion. So the effects of the dual strike would soon be also coming to your television. With network shows going into reruns and likely just a lot more reality television. Ugh, okay, rats. Also, actors would no longer be able to promote new films. So that's a reality that's already existing due to a large degree simply because the writer strike has forced the late-night shows to go dark. Guild members authorized this strike back in early June, and it was a 97.9% of the members voting yes. On June 24th, Fran Drescher, the president of SAG-AFTRA, and Duncan Crabtree Ireland, the national executive director of the Guild, informed its membership that they remained optimistic about the talk and added that the negotiation with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which the trade association that's negotiating for the studios, they said the talks have been productive. A video prompted a group of more than a thousand actors, including Miss Drescher, to sign a letter that urged the union's leadership to not settle for a lesser deal. The letter stated, we are prepared to strike. On June 30th, the union announced that it had, it had extended its contract until July 12th while the sides were continuing the talk. We will see what happens if they come to an agreement. But if they don't, another round of the reruns of the Golden Girls, please. Thank you for being a friend. It's happening, everybody. Barbenheimer is coming to a theater near you. I'm a Barbie and Oppenheimer may not sound like an obvious pairing on paper. One is about an iconic doll entering the real world, while the other focuses on the biographical story about the creation of the atomic bomb. But that is not stopping over 20,000 people from creating their own double feature to see both when they premiere July 21st. That's right, you heard it. Variety is reporting that Barbenheimer, the movement, has some real traction, and it became more than just a social media joke. AMC Theaters sent out a press release stating that over 20,000 of their AMC Stubbs members have plopped down the cash to see both Barbie and Oppenheimer back-to-back. Now, keep in mind, 
This is only just one theater chain, so the numbers could obviously be higher. And obviously, not everyone's going to see both films. Early tracking is pointing to Barbie possibly doubling up Oppenheimer at the box office on opening weekend and could rake in as much as $80 million, although Warner Brothers is thinking somewhere more along the lines of 60 Pretty respectable, honestly. And Oppenheimer is estimated to earn about $40 million. Well, at one point, there were rumors that Barbenheimer wouldn't even be possible. There were talks earlier this year that Oppenheimer would be delayed, but it wasn't the case. So it's still the bomb versus the bombshell this month at theaters. Though, as noted, it's bomb with the bombshell for thousands of others. So whichever one you choose, you're going to have an absolutely bombastic time. Barbie will star Margot Robbie as the iconic doll alongside Ryan Gosling as Ken. Meanwhile, Killian Murphy will star as the title character in Oppenheimer, and this is from filmmaker Christopher Nolan. Come on, Barbie, let's go party. Last episode, I talked about G-strings and cracks. This place is crack-a-lackin'. Exactly. Thank you, Marty. So let's talk more about cracks. I mean, cracks can be fun. They can be jokes. You know, step on a crack, break your mama's back. And thank goodness Mario doesn't have a plumber's crack. The earth is all kinds of cracked up too, but this next story talks about one of the cracks we don't ever want to see. Ever. Amusement park rides scare the ever-loving crap out of me. I have a fear of heights. I actually do have a fear of moving fast, and so, you know, just about everything associated with roller coasters. Which reminds me, hey, Raven, do you actually like roller coasters? It's a bucket list to do them all. Okay, well, I absolutely commend you because, you know, I'm a wuss. I I know. Mm, You said it, not me. Okay, I mean, I can sometimes convince myself to go on one every now and then. I mean, I actually do like going on the Rock and Roller Coaster, which is in Hollywood Studios in Orlando, because I really like Aerosmith. And for me, if I at least have some good music jamming in my ears, I can have fun with it. And I go on these rides secure in the knowledge that, you know, surely the ride wouldn't be up and running if it weren't absolutely safe, right? Right? Well, this is what happened at the Fury 325 Giga Coaster in Charlotte, North Carolina on June 3rd. And this is why it's absolutely terrifying. The ride stands 325 feet tall. It has a, an 81 degree initial drop. No thanks and a top speed of 95 miles an hour. The Fury 325 is the main attraction at the Carowinds Amusement Park. And it probably would be a pretty cool ride if one of the support pillars didn't have a clean break running through it so much that you could actually see the entire thing shifting and moving as people are flying by it at a perpendicular angle. Yeah, no, I'm out. It was seemingly first spotted by a man by the name of Jeremy Wagner. He's a season pass holder whose daughter and niece had apparently ridden the Fury about eight times on June the 30th before the crack was spotted. And it wasn't until Wagner was heading back to his car from the parking lot that he even noticed the catastrophic failure. He recorded a video of it and then rushed to warn a Carowinds employee about the danger. Now, according to the Washington Post, Wagner told the first employee he found, y'all need to shut this ride down. This is bad news. He didn't feel like he was getting a good enough response, so he went to tell a second person over in Park Services. Still concerned, he tried calling the amusement park on the car ride home, but he only got the automated system. And finally, he just said, I'm done. Called the local fire department who went and spoke to the park security team, and they later confirmed that the ride had been shut down. That is a lot of people to contact about a ride issue. There should have been an easier way to do this. Courtney Weber is a Carowinds spokesperson, and she talked to the Washington Post and made a statement. Quote, safety is our top priority, and we appreciate the patience and understanding of our valued guests during this process as part of our comprehensive safety protocols. All rides, including the Fury 325, undergo daily inspections to ensure their proper functioning and structural integrity, end quote. Commenters on the story really just shared doubts about that statement. One commenter posted, 
there is zero excuse for the inspection team to miss this. And honestly, zero excuse for the build to have failed like it did. Unquote. Another commenter stated it, press X for doubt. Unquote. Now, for his part, Wagner's not ditching his season pass anytime soon. He's apparently going to let the kids ride the roller coaster when it reopens, though who knows when that actually will be. The North Carolina Department of Labor is also now involved, and its amusement device bureau will be investigating, and they plan to be at Carowinds later this week. Now, that's according to a department spokesperson by the name of Aaron Wilson. In a report that was released July the 9th by a state labor official, he said that the park was operating the high-speed roller coaster for maybe 6 to 10 days while one of the steel pillars was fractured. That's terrifying. A representative for Carowinds said in a statement that on July 6th, the ride's manufacturer had designed the ride with redundancies in place to ensure the safety of guests in the event of an issue like the cracked beam. The park has ordered a new support beam, and that's expected to be delivered within the next week. They also intend to add drones with cameras in order to access and inspect hard-to-reach areas. That is a scary prospect to see that. I am going to make sure I post the link to the video. It is super obvious the way that it's wobbling, where the crack is. And some commenters were like, well, you know, maybe it was just a failed seam. And other words were commenting, that's not where a seam would normally be. That's just an actual fault. So it's, it's like I said, to me, it's terrifying just the idea. I mean, the ride at least held up. Thank goodness, no injuries, but it was a big concern. The ride is still shut down and has been since the 30th of June. And we'll see how long it takes for them to get it back up. But thankfully, everyone is safe and they'll be able to enjoy the ride a little bit later. In October of 1991, Microsoft Entertainment Pack 3 for Windows 3.0 was released. Included in that pack was the single-player skiing computer game created by Chris Peary, and it was called Ski Free. I played this game so much as a kid. The whole idea was there was a player controlling a skier on a mountain slope. They were avoiding obstacles while racing against time or even performing stunts for points, depending on which game mode you chose. Ski Free was pretty well received upon release, with critics focusing on its simplicity and the graphics at the time. The game ended up being ported to Macintosh and, years later, Game Boy Color and iOS. Now, Peary also released a free updated 32-bit Windows version after rediscovering his original source code. Ski Free remains popular among the gaming community and it's often remembered for the Abominable Snowman, which pursues the player after they finish a full run. Oh, that lovely snowman. Want to play as the snowman? Do you want to play the snowman? Well, good news, games fans. An indie developer by the name of Robert Shenton has now created a version of the game where you play as the hungry yeti that eats the hapless skiers. It was created as part of Game Maker's Toolkit Game Jam 2023. The little game is called Yeti Upsetty, and it exactly is what it sounds like. You're controlling the Yeti from Ski Free as they run around and they try to eat as many skiers as possible before you die of hunger. It is playable in your browser and it works with most controllers. Personally, I recommend sticking to the trees because it really seems that skiers tend to run into them a lot. Look out! We're heading straight for those trees! Yeah, yeah, relax. Trees down! Trees down! Well, if they didn't already have enough to deal with, Pokemon Go developer has been accused of the boys' club workplace culture in a lawsuit. An employee, ex-employee, excuse me, they're no longer there, says Niantic interfered with worker attempts to address sexism within the company. Now, this is just under two weeks after the Pokemon Go developer laid off over 200 workers, and Niantic is now the subject of a lawsuit that alleges the company has a systematic sexual bias against female employees. This was originally reported by The Verge, and the lawsuit comes from a former Niantic employee who is accusing the company of devaluing the work of its female employees, and even especially women of color. Now, this extended to favoritism towards the male employees, underpaying female workers, 
and labeling those that speak out against these conditions as a, quote, problem by upper management and subsequently pushed out of the company. The, Ni the Niantic lawsuit goes on to call Niantic a boys club where men mentor and boost the careers of other men while leaving women and women of color behind. If this is true, yikes on spikes. The employee who put forth the complaint described the situation where she was earning a salary of about 70000 a year when she started working at Niantic back in February of 2020. She was later promoted and got a raise of about to about 84000 Went on to find out a male colleague was being paid more than her and had a lower job title. By 2022, allegedly he's receiving over 120000 and she's paying just a little over 100 despite the higher job title, even after receiving a raise earlier that year. And after she learned this, she learned she was being paid $10,000 less than her job's pay range by comparing, comparing excuse me, her compensation to other California employees. That state has a pay transparency law, so she's able to look this up. This anonymous employee went on to talk to other female workers within the Niantic workspace, then took them and brought them forward to the Niantic Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Director. And basically, she said they were hostile to her complaints and voiced concerns about sexism and sexual bias within her workplace. Now, the lawsuit also claims that the executives in the meeting said her pay range was being affected by her voicing her concerns to other colleagues in Wolfpack, which is an employee resource group for women. Well, this prompted the, the worker to unsubscribe from Wolfpack because she started fearing that any association with that group was going to affect her position within the company. This past spring, Wolfpack put out a survey about Niantic's workplace culture. The results revealed several, several female employees were dissatisfied with the state of the company and said that sexist work culture disadvantages anyone who isn't a man and specifically pointed to pay inequity. According to the lawsuit, Niantic's chief marketing officer, Mike Quigley, required Wolfpack to remove references to the Boys Club and any other comments about sexism from its presentation to Wolfpack members. This also prompted the company to tell Wolfpack it was no longer allowed to send out surveys without approval from company's upper management. So this is all coming at a time when Niantic's facing several challenges. They did the layoff of over 220 workers. They've closed one office, at least, that I know of. There's backlash from the player base regarding changes to the way Pokemon Go is played, which spawned the infamous hashtag HearUsNiantic trend. It seems, though, Niantic's got a few bigger concerns than their player base at the moment. And we're going to watch and see what happens to them next. Actor Tom Holland is known for many things, for being the most recent actor to don the Spider-Man mask, to lip-syncing the best performance of Rihanna's Umbrella, which honestly was super hot and just amazingly well done, by the way, to being in the new Apple Plus TV thriller called The Crowded Room. He's a pretty busy dude. And he recently appeared on the On Purpose with Jay Shetty podcast, where he addressed his recent step back from social media and how the media handled it. And let's just say he wasn't happy. So Holland is playing a character in this Apple TV thriller, The Crowded Room. The character's name is Danny Sullivan, and Sullivan was arrested on the night of a shooting in New York in 1979. But the character is actually based on a real-life person by the name of Billy Milligan, who was arrested around the same time in history. His story became the basis for the 1981 book by Daniel Keyes called The Minds of Billy Milligan. Milligan went under psychological examination and he was diagnosed with acute schizophrenia and later with dissociative identity disorder, which we used to call multiple personality disorder. His legal team pleaded the insanity defense, and in the first case of its kind, Milligan was the first person diagnosed with this dissociative identity disorder to raise such a defense and later be acquitted of a major crime just for this reason. Now, this role has apparently taken a very big, major, major mental toll on Tom Holland. And so, while he's on set and filming, he made the announcement that he's taking a social media break. And he had this to say, quote, 
I was having a really hard time with the job just because of how taxing it was, the emotional capacity that I was having to get to do every day. And I decided to delete my Instagram because I just felt like I was so addicted to this kind of false version of my life that it was just taking over, unquote. Now, Holland would recall that even when he was on set working, he would just be sitting in his seat scrolling through social media during his breaks. He said, quote, it was becoming a problem. I was just obsessed with it, and I was obsessed to find out what people were saying. The realization prompted the Marvel actor to take a step back from social media altogether at that point. Quote, I decided to make an announcement, which unfortunately we have to do. I try to position myself and say like, hey, I'm taking a break from social media because I feel like my mental health will benefit from it. And the thing that really upset me is the press ran with that. And they tried to make it out that I was having a mental breakdown. And what upset me was that if I was having a mental breakdown, that's not for you to report on. They took the story in the wrong direction. They painted this negative light on mental health. And rather than saying, it's okay that he's doing it. We should all feel okay to do it. No, they were saying, oh, look, he's not the perfect happy-go-lucky kid you think he is. He's having a nervous breakdown in New York. I think that that was a really unfair line of journalism, end quote. Holland had a very similar response to press coverage of his year-long break from acting. He had previously told Entertainment Weekly that he'd originally planned to take a breather, after starring in back-to-back blockbusters such as Uncharted and then Spider-Man No Way Home, but he ended up having to put that plan on hold when he got the call to do The Crowded Room. After that particularly taxing uh, shoot, he decided, I'm taking time for myself. Quote, It's only a break from acting because I'm an actor. It's not the acting itself. I just have been so lucky that in my life I've been working so much I just wanted to take a break. I wanted to be in one place for a while. I wanted to be with my friends, be with my family, move into my house, end quote. And he went on to explain that the break has been incredibly constructive, both in regards to his mental health and as a way to embrace adulthood. Quote, I've done so much of my growing up on the road. I needed to do a lot of growing up at home, paying my water bill, paying my council taxes, and sorting out my bins and all the stuff that they don't teach you in school. And I think there should be a lesson at school that is called life, which is like laundry, basic cooking. Like, I didn't realize you had to pay for your water. I just thought that was a luxury of living in England. Yeah, the water comes out of the sky and then you open up your tap, right? I was so behind on my water bill, I didn't realize. I am up to date now. Don't worry. End quote. Now, just a side note, Tom Holland's only 27 years old, but he's been acting for a really long time. And he was only 19 when he landed the role which currently is his largest role of Peter Parker in Spider-Man. That's a lot for a young person to deal with. So it sounds like he's doing a pretty good job identifying what issues he's had and dealing with them. And I know he recently announced that he has been sober for a year and a half, so he's been dealing with alcoholism on top of all of this other stuff. And he is right. The media does tend to jump on this bandwagon of, oh my God, he's not perfect, let's celebrate this, and tear him down off the pedestal we put him on. Instead, though, his fans, thankfully, they're praising his actions. They're calling calling on him, and and they're saying, you're inspiring to us. Not that he's going to see these messages at the moment, though, you know, because he is on a break. But seriously, good for him. Good for him for identifying it. And we look forward to seeing him back up on the big screen again soon. We first saw Hugh Jackman become the Wolverine, a.k.a. Logan, in the 2000 blockbuster X-Men, and he completely owned that role. It's kind of like watching the whole Robert Downey Jr. becoming Iron Man, Tony Stark thing. It's just hard to imagine somebody else in that role. Hugh Jackman has remained as the official Wolverine in the movies since 2000 until, spoiler alert, Logan dies in the 2017 film Logan. That was it. He was done. That was Jackson Jackman's retirement as the Wolverine until Ryan Reynolds, that is. In September of 2022, Reynolds and Jackman officially announced the return of Wolverine in Deadpool's Marvel Cinematic Universe debut, Deadpool 3. And to allay fears from the fans, Reynolds stated Deadpool 3 will not interfere with Logan's continuity. 
He said, quote, Logan takes place in 2029. It's a totally separate thing. Logan died in Logan. We're not touching that, end quote. Whew, okay, well, that's a relief. I mean, fans were really happy with how Logan ended, even if it really was, you know, a bittersweet ending. But Logan and Deadpool have already had one outing together with Wolverine Origins. And now, two decades, nine movies later, after X-Men cracked a joke about Wolverine's costume, where Cyclops asked him if he'd rather wear yellow spandex than the film's signature black leather flight suits, Hugh Jackman is finally, finally suiting the heck up in Wolverine's comic book costume and Deadpool 3. Holy cow, y'all, it's really happening. The yellow suit is coming to a theater near you, but not until May 3rd of 2024. I mean, I can wait, I think. In a photo shared on July 10th on Ryan Reynolds' Instagram story, Jackman can be seen on set in the full comic book costume, sans the mask, okay, next to Deadpool. And there's really not much else in the photo, but honestly, that's enough. Myself, along with other fans, thought this day would never come. But now, Jackman's not the only one coming back to an old role for the new Deadpool. In a very big, huge surprise move, Jennifer Garner will be coming back to the Marvel Universe to reprise her role as Elektra for the first time since the 2003 Daredevil movie and the subsequent contractually obligated 2005 sequel, Elektra. Now, that version of Daredevil was played by Ben Affleck, though there's no announcements of him joining Deadpool and Wolverine in this new movie just yet, if ever. And though that movie really got panned all the pieces, both Elektra and Deadpool, I'm sorry, Elektra and Daredevil, I actually thought they were good. I mean, I enjoyed them. They're cheesy, but they're fun. And honestly, I never really thought we would ever see Garner come back as Elektra, but I'm pretty down with it. I thought she did a good job. Now, Deadpool, I mean, honestly, it's just an enjoyable franchise. So adding all these extra fan favorites is just, it's just icing on top of the proverbial cupcake. A brand new trailer for Twisted Metal has dropped. And honestly, it's the best look yet for this upcoming TV series. Twisted Metal is a comedy series that's based on PlayStation's dormant vehicle combat video game franchise and it's going to star anthony mackie of falcon and wiltshire soldier fame he's playing a motormouth outsider offered a chance at a better life but only if he can successfully deliver a mysterious package across a post-apocalyptic wasteland now mackie is going to be helped by a character by the name of quiet who is a bad a axe-wielding car thief played by stephanie beatrice those who know her from Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Encanto. Twisted Metal is also going to start Thomas Hayden Church as a psychotic highway patrolman by the name Agent Stone, as Will Arnett joins the cast to voice the character known as Sweet Tooth, who will be played on screen by none other than Joe Sinoa, also known as AEW's Samoa Joe. I tell you what, if that doesn't get you pumped up, I don't know what else will. But the show is going to debut on the Peacock Network July 27th of 2023, and all 10 half-hour episodes will premiere at that time. Now, fans of this cult PlayStation franchise, they kind of have mixed feelings about what they'd seen of the series so far. One clip showed Anthony Mackie's John Doe getting smacked around by Sweet Tooth before pausing to sing Cisco's Thong Song. I swear that song is now haunting me. But in an absurdly funny show, you know, I'm probably going to be checking this one out. This one looks like it actually just may be a lot of fun. Back in January of 2022, Logan Paul partnered with his longtime boxing rival by the name of KSI and launched Prime. Now, Prime Hydration, it's a range of sports drinks, drink mixes, and energy drinks. They were created and they were marketed by Prime Hydration, LLC. The energy drink was launched earlier this year in 2023 and is said to contain 200 milligrams of caffeine in the 12-ounce can. Now, for reference, 
an eight ounce cup of coffee has 95 milligrams. And that the, the amount of caffeine in Prime is what they're saying is double what a 12 ouncer of Red Bull is. Now, a U.S. senator is starting to sound the alarm on Logan Paul's energy drink. New York's Chuck Schumer held a press conference back on July 9th decrying Prime's eye-popping levels of caffeine and, and the marketing that's aimed at kids. Schumer is urging the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, to formally investigate the drink's health effects and its advertising. Schumer in the press conference said, quote, One of the summer's hottest status symbols for kids is not an outfit, it's not a toy, it's a beverage. But buyer and parents beware, because it's a serious health concern for the kids that it so feverishly targets. The problem here is that the product has so much caffeine in it, it puts Red Bull to shame. But unlike Red Bull, Prime's advertising campaign is targeted at kids under 18, end quote. It is true, a single 12-ounce can of Prime Energy does contain 200 milligrams of caffeine, which is in fact double what a 12-ouncer of Red Bull is packing. It's worth specifying, though, that Prime is actually two different products. They have the sports drink that comes in plastic bottles. It's advertised more like a Gatorade replacement and an energy drink variant that comes in metal cans like most other energy drinks. The sports drink version, zero caffeine. And as far as I've seen, seems to be a drink that gets most of the marketing. Now, Prime is hardly unique, though. We're currently experiencing a new wave of energy drinks that I like to call the anti-bang drinks. They position themselves as light, slightly fizzy pick-me-ups with simple fruity flavors. And for people my age, the equivalent energy drink sensation is actually Celsius. I see more of those getting drunk than any others. That also has 200 milligrams of caffeine. It comes in the same 12-ounce can. So you could argue that Celsius' small can and unassuming pictures of sliced fruit paint a flawed picture of what you're actually drinking. Now, the 16-ounce G Fuel drinks with the flavors that are endorsed by popular influencers and gaming franchises have an even more intense 300 milligrams of caffeine. Okay, honestly, Logan Paul is not likely to win any awards for being an upstanding citizen anytime soon. But neither is he the only one that's challenging kids and adults to consume ungodly doses of caffeine. So I do wonder, will the FDA start generally restricting these energy drink ingredients? The regulating body issued limit limitations on the concentrated caffeine powders as recently as 2018, but it's not clear if there's a limit for beverages in the U.S. Now, Prime Energy was banned in some Australian schools earlier this year, citing the caffeine volume. And it was also pulled from stores in Denmark for exceeding the country's legal limits of caffeine per 100 milliliters. I really just get jittery thinking about how much caffeine that really is. Dang, that reminds me. Can we pause the show so I can go get some coffee? What, seriously? We all better now. Hi. All right, well, now that Raven settled down with his coffee, we're moving on. In 2021, the weird, spooky stealth action game called Betrayer was pulled from Steam. And now it's returned, just not on Steam. It went to GOG. And it's free. Betrayer is a mostly monochromatic first-person stealth action shooter. And it was set in the early days of colonial America. Betrayer begins with players washed up on the shores of what is now Virginia, alone with no provisions. A short path leads them to a nearby fort, which is oddly abandoned, except for the presence of strange, slightly disturbing figures of ashes. Now, the surrounding landscape is filled with Native American warriors, Spanish conquistadors, all of them hostile, and the only non-enemy in the game, the Maiden in Red, is clearly working through some issues of her own. And the default monochrome and like blood red color pattern was pretty striking. But for reasons unknown, Betrayer was just yoinked right from Steam in 2021. A very unfortunate but not uncommon fate. But now, without warning or any kind of context, it's been resurrected on GOG. And they made it free. 
and it doesn't appear to be a time-limited giveaway. It's just straight up free. Take it and go. Have a nice day. Development studio Black Powder Games, which was formed by ex-Monolith uh, production staffers, they haven't released another game since, and it seemingly shut down sometime after Betrayer's release. So I don't really know what to make of this sudden, unexpected return from Digital Purgatory, but I am quite certain that for the low, low price of absolutely nothing, Betrayer is worth at least a few minutes of your time. And it might turn into something of a grind midway through, but it really nails that spooky, haunted ambiance of a rugged, lonely land gripped by something a little bit evil. And welcome back to the box office breakdown. So who ended up where on this last weekend? Now, post-COVID, there are a lot of studios that have been able to make horror movies work at the box office. Paramount had the movie Smile, Warner Brothers struck gold with Evil Dead Rise, and Universal had Megan and the Black Phone. But Sony, not so much until now. Red Door opened to $32.6 million this weekend, which is the second best start in the Insidious franchise after Chapter 2. So Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny just got bopped to number two for the, their second weekend out. Now, Red Door is also representing the best start in the last two years for a PG-13 horror movie. More pom-poms for Sony. Their Marvel Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse just outstripped Disney and Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 as the highest grossing movie of the summer by 357 million point five to 357 point six and it's still going now for Blumhouse Red Door is the 16th title to open at number one and while their tent poles are getting all the glory in the post-COVID marketplace Blumhouse is continuing to, to deliver Sony's getting a lot of props here they're finally getting their hands around a franchise that they've always had a financial stake in. I mean, I hear Sony, uh, the Sony Motion Picture Group, their chairman and CEO, uh, Tom Roth is his name. He selected this brilliant Daredevil release date in between Indiana Jones and ahead of the Tom Cruise Cyclone Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Now, that is some bravado. Now, typically, studios will avoid going in the wake of a big Disney movie like Marvel or a Lucasfilm release. But rival studio brass will often hear when the competition is really coming up short, months before a picture's opening. Either that or box office history is kind of telling. Now, despite its huge $100 million opening, the less than fan favorite we don't talk about, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of Crystal Skull, they only held on to the number one for one weekend, and that was back in 2008. What defeated it? Sex in the City on week two. Yeah. So Tom Rothman was pretty adamant that Red Door needed to make its release date. So what's the difference between this Insidious movie and all of the others? Well, it's bringing the original cast back together. That's pretty exciting. Patrick Wilson, Rose Byrne, Ty Simpkins, they're all coming back, and making that happen was actually Patrick Wilson himself. He's making his feature directorial debut on this movie. What's also interesting is that Sony originally bought the U.S. rights on the first film out of the Toronto International Film Festival, but ended up making a distribution deal to release in the U.S., and they've been slowly trying to gain the foreign rights. Well, as of this release of Red Door, they have all global rights, so Sony is sitting on a cash cow with the Insidious franchise now. Now, this franchise is really just as alive as other long-running horror franchises. I mean, Saw and Scream, they were putting up 30 million starts as well. So with Indiana Jones holding the number two spot, Sound of Freedom stands at a solid third place for the weekend, which took many people by surprise. The story of Sound of Freedom follows a federal agent who is investigating child trafficking. Disney's Elemental and Sony's Spider-Man round out the top five for the weekend. And now, for something different. Okay, okay, we got two stories again today? Well, seems to be a little bit of a pattern. Our first story just goes to show it's never too late to return that library book. Here's your PSA. Now, as books go, James Clerk Maxwell's An Elementary Treatise on Electricity 
It's hardly a household name, but it has gained renewed attention after a copy was returned last month to a Massachusetts library nearly 120 years overdue. The book was published in 1881, written by a prominent Scottish physicist, and it was an early scientific text laying out electrical theory. It has a 208 pages, it's bound by a cranberry-colored cover, and is crammed with technical jar- gar- jargon, that, 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 medleys of elaborate mathematical equations as well. Now, the New Bedford Free Public Library in Massachusetts acquired the book back in 1882, and this is according to Olivia Mello, the director of the library. It was likely either last checked out February 14th of 1904 or February 14th of 1905. The faded stamp in the book makes it difficult to be certain, but a faint circular shape after the 10190 seems to suggest a later date. A prior checkout date does read December 10th of 1903. Now, for those familiar with history, when the book was last in New Bedford, The nation was preparing for its second Modern World Series. Uh, The incumbent Republican President Theodore Roosevelt was on track to win another term. Wilbur and Orville Wright had just conducted their first airplane flight a year prior, and New York City was celebrating its first subway line. Long time ago. But how in the world did it find its way back after 120 years? Well, on May the 30th, the library was contacted by Stuart Plain. She's a curator of rare books at West Virginia University's library in Morgantown, West Virginia. Ms. Plain wrote in a note, We have received a donation recently that included a book from your library. There is no withdrawn information. Would you like it returned to you? End quote. Libraries mark books as withdrawn to indicate that they no longer own a book. So if you go to a bookstore and you find a library book that has that little binding on there, and then it says withdrawn somewhere on a in the cover, that's a book that was removed from circulation and sold off. But the absence of such a mark told Miss Plain that it possibly still belonged to New Bedford Free Public Library, so she mailed the book back. Miss Mello says the book is in optimal shape, the words are legible, and the sign, the spine, is actually pretty sturdy. Which, considering it may have been in somebody's collection, um, it may have been in storage, that's amazing shape to be in. When the Elementary Treaties on Electricity was checked out, the new Bedford Free Public Library charged a one-cent fee every day it was late. So had that fee remained without a cap, the borrower would have owed roughly $430. Without the cap, at today's late fee rate of five cents a day, the balance would be more than $2,000. But late fees, they got capped decades ago just at $2 so that people would be encouraged to return the book. No, oh, and by the way, the Guinness World Record for the most overdue library book is held by one that was returned to Sydney Sussex College. It was borrowed in 1668 and was returned 288 years later. The book was titled Various Historians of the North Germans and Neighboring People. It was borrowed by Colonel Wal- Robert Walpole, who was the father of Sir Robert Walpole, who is regarded as the first Prime Minister of Great Britain. Well, better late than never, right? A real-life under-the-sea musical number took place in Big Pine Key, Florida on July the 8th. All that was missing was Ariel and a couple of nautical friends. Instead, hundreds of divers and snorkelers listened to the underwater concert that advocated for coral reef protection. The Lower Keys Underwater Music Festival is what it's called, and it also spotlighted eco-conscious diving. And it took place at Lou Key Reef, which is an area of the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary, located about six miles south of Big Pine Key. Established back in 1990, the sanctuary protects 3,800 square miles of waters, including the barrier reef that parallels the 125-mile-long island chain of the Florida Keys. Participants swam among Lou Keys' colorful marine life and coral formations while listening to the water-themed music broadcast by a local radio station. The music was piped under the water through water 
waterproof speakers that were suspended beneath the boats above the reef. The Oceanic playlist included the Beatles' Yellow Submarine, Jimmy Buffett's Fins, and of course the theme from The Little Mermaid. I would have been disappointed otherwise. But, wait, no Titanic music? Eh, maybe it would have been a little out of place. But anyway, the tunes were interspersed with diver awareness messages about ways to minimize environmental impacts on the world's coral reefs, which has very rich diversity that has led them to be called like the rainforest of the sea. Pretty cool name. And while the primary focus of the festival was to encourage reef preservation, it also did afford a singular underwater experience pretty unique. Mermaids and other costume characters added really cool visual elements to the auditory offering on part of the continental United States' only living coral barrier reef. Hmm, well, maybe Ariel did show up after all. Now, the four-hour musical event was staged by the local radio station 104.1 FM and the Lower Keys Chamber of Commerce. That would have been really awesome and a really unique experience. And I'll tell you what, Florida, it's something else, isn't it? So the boys are making their rounds. We had some mermaids, actor strikes, roller coasters cracking up, Logan in yellow, and overdue library books. Variety is the spice of life, right? Awesome trip we took today. Thank you guys so much for joining me on it. And I do want to remind you that I do include the link to all of my sources in the comments. So you can see what I see and more. Also, don't forget to drop us a comment or send us an email if there's a story that you want us to cover. Join us next time as we check out the latest in entertainment news. Remember, stay comfy in the starter zone. This is Amanda. Good luck and have fun. Listening to the Starter Zone with Amanda. I am Raven. We thank you for your time and support. Without you, we simply would not be. Please hit that like and subscribe button and visit us on Facebook and Twitter at The Starter Zone. Have we missed something? Have something to say? Leave us a comment or send us audio clips for your chance to be on the show. We invite you to come back for more exciting news and commentary on the world around you. See you next time in the Starter Zone.